Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. You know, I probably share this every Resurrection Sunday, but it's probably my all-time favorite Christian cartoon or comic. It's a single-panel, far-side-type panel of a guy standing outside of a tree. He's exiting a church service. People are coming down, and the pastor's there greeting people as they leave. And the sign in the churchyard says, Hallelujah, he is risen. This lets you know this is Easter Sunday. And the guy's standing there with this, sm- this smirk on his face as he shakes the pastor's hand and says, You're in a rut, Reverend. Every time I come to church, you talk about the resurrection. Get it? All right. I've been uh, reading and listening lately, not deeply, but a lot, to uh, a British historian that I had never heard of, frankly, until a few weeks ago. And his name is Tom Holland. Not that Tom Holland. It's not Spider-Man, not Peter Parker from the Marvel movies. Uh, but his... His contention and what, he got, my, what got my attention on, on some of his work is that Christianity as a religion and as a worldview has done far more to civilize humanity than any other system in history. Now, his specialty is antiquity, uh, as in you know, ancient history. He loves talking uh, about the old civilizations. Actually, his first love was dinosaurs. And we're talking, way, we're talking prehistory there. But when he's looking at dinosaurs, he didn't like the gentle plant-eating dinosaurs. He liked the Tyrannosaurus rex, the Allosaurus, these meat-eaters, these terrors, these dominant reptiles. And then um, as he moved forward into uh, ancient history, he was fascinated by these empires, these powerful empires. He was raised in a Christian home, and so he, he, he learned the Bible, but even as he read the Bible, he was more fascinated with the Persians, the Egyptians, uh, the, these conquering, powerful nations. Even in the New Testament, he was more fascinated with Pilate because Pilate was in a position of power, and he saw this. This is how people rule. This is how people impose their will on civilizations is simply through brute strength and power. And, uh, but then, as he began to look at the last 2,000 years, he realized that all of our moral positions, everything that civilized man understands inherently about right and wrong, emerged from the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the evangelism of Paul. He says that it is because of Christianity that monogamy is considered the norm in Western civilization. It's because of Christianity and a Christian worldview that people still shudder at the thought of abortion, even those who defend the right. That's becoming, I've seen it become less and less true, but the standard response for many years, watching, for instance, in political campaigns, you know, every president had to make known his position on abortion. And those who were pro-choice, self-described pro-choice, the, the, the standard statement was something like this, uh, abortion needs to be safe, 
legal and rare. This is sort of how they straddled the issue. I don't like it any more than you do, but we have to have it in place as a legal right just in case. Well, that's never really been the issue. And then I can remember a couple of campaigns ago uh, on, on what they call Winger's Night at one of the conventions. A woman got up there, and, and normally the, the, the story that was, that, they always bring up somebody to tell their story, like this is why we need to preserve the right. Uh, I was, it, and it's always some horrible, I got pregnant because of this horrible thing happened to me, and it was going to be this, the horrible, it's what would have happened to me if I had to carry the baby full term, and it was just a nightmare, perfect storm of nightmares, and thank, thank the United States of America and the Supreme Court that I didn't have to do that because Roe v. Wade is there to protect me. And uh, a few campaigns ago, instead of that, they had a woman come out. And, and say, here I am, I'm married, I'm professional, we had plenty of money, I wasn't raped, I got pregnant by my husband, but the timing wasn't right for us, and we just didn't want to have a baby, so I didn't. And everybody cheered, standing ovation. But that's, that's still an extreme position for a lot, a lot of people. Abortion still bothers people at a very visceral level. We know it's wrong, and I'm not just going to pick on that one sin today. I'm just saying this is something that's an easy thing to identify. And this guy, Holland, says the reason we feel that way about so much of the things, again, that we consider Western morals, Western ethics, is because we live in a Christianized environment. It is Christianity that causes us to think that way because prior to 2,000 years ago, if they, they, they didn't like the looks of a baby, they just threw it in the trash. This was common. It was brutal. It was savage. Unless you were a part of the power elite, you had no rights at all. And God help you if you were a woman. Women and children didn't have rights. Women's rights, protection of children, ending slavery, at least in the West, protection of the disabled, uh, building of hospitals, libraries, schools, everything that makes life much, much more civilized, he traces directly back to Christianity and gives Christianity all the credit for the world we live in. Interestingly, Dr. D. James Kennedy, I don't know how many of you remember him, longtime pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, 30 years ago made the same case in a book called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Both these men make the same case, that the main difference is this. Uh, Dr. Kennedy, of course, was a Christian pastor, Christian author, and what we would call today an influencer. And Holland, who makes the exact same case for the impact Christianity has had on civilization, is himself an atheist. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Because... I think the caricature a lot of us have in mind of the atheist is somebody foaming at the mouth and railing against Christianity and the morals that Christianity is trying to force on society. And they're there, of course. They're the ones, they're the loudest ones, so they get all the press and so they, they, they come to represent all atheists. But Holland's not alone. I've, I've uh, mentioned this guy before, and again, speaking of abortion, a columnist for years, and he died, I don't know, years ago now, but still fairly recently, a guy named Nat Hentoff. Anybody remember him? He wrote a, a syndicated column. He was a Bill of Rights expert. And 
culturally he was a Jew, but uh, also an atheist, but one of the most powerful pro-life voices uh, that was out there. He just, he talked about how from a legal standpoint, Roe v. Wade was simply bad law. And if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, Google this, pro-life liberal atheist. And you will find a lot more results than you will suspect. We're talking activists who are, they're activists for uh, all sorts of liberal causes. Uh, there are LGBT activists and activists for atheism, activists for all sorts of liberal expressions, but they are also extreme activists for the pro-life position because they can simply see through the nonsense that a life in the womb is not a life. They espouse these values that are almost uniquely Christian, and yet they deny Christ. Now, in one sense, this is kind of a vindication for us, isn't it? Do you know what I'm saying? That people, even who, have, who are outside of our camp, um, they recognize that what we believe makes sense insofar as we are talking about morality, right and wrong, good and evil, the things that cause mankind to prosper and thrive. Here's my question, though. For those who give credit to Christianity and Christ's teachings for civilizing the world, how did it take off? How did we get here? How did we come so far so fast? How did Christianity become the dominant worldview for so much of the world. Now I also understand, uh, and, and these stats are readily available, uh, Christianity is and has been for centuries the number one religion. There are over, uh, well over two billion people who call themselves Christians. Uh, but there are two things you need to understand about that. Number one, percentage-wise, that number is shrinking. And the next one, which we're still hundreds of millions, the gap between number one and two is in the hundreds of millions, if not a billion or more, is Islam. And that percentage is rising. The other thing is that of that 32, 33% of the world population that call themselves Christians, you and I both know that not every one of those would meet the biblical standard for Christianity, right? Now, it, it, it also bears saying that a huge percentage of those who call themselves Muslims are no more Muslims than a number of people who call themselves Christians are Christians. They're simply cultural Muslims. They would say they're Muslims because they live in a Muslim country, just as most people 40 years ago would say they're Christians just because they live in America. All right? But we know what. We're talking about people who have had an encounter with the living God, the risen Christ, who have been born again, who have confessed Christ as their Savior after they confessed their need for a Savior and have called him their Lord. We'll get to that at the end of, the, end of this message. But still, <laughs> this is a very, uh, even though the entire world hasn't heard the gospel, the Western world, as we call it, has been highly Christianized. And how did that happen? How, in fact, did it ever grow beyond a few disciples in Jerusalem? which was a city in a backwater province in the Roman Empire. You see what I'm saying? Judea was not the center of the Roman Empire, not by a long shot. You know, if you were governor of Judea under, under Caesar, this was not 
what I would call a plum roll in the cabinet or what passed for the cabinet. Jesus did make a huge impact during his ministry. He got a lot of attention, but his ministry was confined almost exclusively to Judea. And Jesus didn't hail from the best part of Judea. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The whole matter of the crucifixion even, which we discussed last week, and this is difficult for us to comprehend today, that was little more than a blip on the radar in the grand scheme of things at the time. It was a local disturbance. And now here we have people today, and it's one of the most tiring things that I hear. They'll offer accolades to Jesus and his teachings. Uh, You know, kindness, love, peace, forgiveness, and other things that are, of course, hard to argue with even today. And they'll acknowledge that Paul's writings, some of them anyway, were ahead of his time. When Paul talks about there's no uh, Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, nor, no, no male nor female, and he's talking about in the eyes of God here, that looks pretty good. Hey, equality. Jesus made little impact beyond his area of personal ministry, geographically speaking, that is. And yet, here we have people today hailing his teachings hailing Paul's writings, not all of them, you understand. They pick and choose, not as we, as a society, move further and further away from that ideal, the more this stuff is being attacked. And by the way, Holland uh, sadly observes that the very things that people, that he has to recognize, Christianity gave these things to the world. We have a civilized civilization because of Christianity. Never says because of Christ. He says, but the things that elevated Western society and civilize it so much, are the very things now that are being attacked. These very values that we we used to call morality, uh, those are the things that Christianity is now being attacked for. And it's a little bit ironic and more than a little bit sad. Anyway, looking at Jesus' ministry geographically, didn't go far, but his dedicated disciples, numbering about 120 most of whom were nowhere to be found during the trial and crucifixion, somehow managed to carry his work on to such an extent that it literally changed the world. Now remember this, because we usually talk about this on Palm Sunday, and indeed we did last Sunday, that those who did stick with Jesus mostly did it because they thought he was going to manifestly restore Israel to its former glory. We are going to have a return to the days and the type of Israel that we had under King David. If he is the Messiah, we are going to see something special here in the next few years because he's going to get Rome off our backs and we're going to be back on top of the world. And they believed that right up until when? Actually, right up until the ascension. Actually, probably right up until Pentecost. They stuck with him. Even when things looked dark, they're like, oh no, the crucifixion was not what they were expecting, even though he told them it was going to happen. So they scattered. Well, if he was, gonna, if he was the Messiah and he was going to throw Rome off our backs, we missed that shot because now he's dead. And then when he rose from the dead, they're like, ah, we're back. Their, their first reaction was praise the Lord because they love Jesus. You're alive, you're alive, and, and, they're, and, and they're, they were happy. 
but also their plans were back on track. Okay, now we can get back with this overthrowing Rome thing, right? Even right up to the ascension, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, and off he goes. And he said, but he tells them to wait. And I think during that time they were waiting, and they were praying, and I believe what they were waiting for was something that was still going to set them on that track, and then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were filled with power and boldness and went out and began to do Jesus' real plan, which was not about an earthly kingdom at all. We'll talk more about that maybe on Pentecost. They began to preach, teach, heal, and deliver, and they really did it. From that moment on, they were unstoppable. Thousands of conversions slash confessions of faith slash baptisms after one sermon, miracles in the name of Jesus. And this all continued for the entire lives of the apostles and well beyond, of course. I'm not a cessationist, as you know. And the rest of the disciples. And this was all in an atmosphere of extreme persecution. Almost all of the apostles, and who knows how many of the 120 original ones, died. Martyrs' deaths torturous, horrible deaths. And Paul, the greatest figure in Christianity outside of Christ himself, endured constant persecution throughout his ministry. Again, when I say these things lasted, the power and the manifestations and the miracles through the lives of the apostles, I'm not suggesting for a second that these things stopped when they died. I'm simply drawing your attention to the crucial point that they themselves endured their whole lives without ever abandoning their faith, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of death. And like many others, I conclude that the only thing that can account for that kind of dedication is the resurrection. Follow me here. The crowds flocked to Jesus because of his miracles, especially his healings, but also like the feeding of the thousands. They continued to follow him because he taught with authority. He wasn't like any other teacher they had heard. But a good number of those who followed him were the outcasts, the down-and-outers in Judea. There were some of his teachings that were not at all popular with the powerful. They were a threat to the powerful. They were offensive to much of the pagan world, as we read in the book of Acts. Yet Christianity grew. And it did not grow because the teachings of Christ simply won people over. It grew because Christ himself was boldly proclaimed by those who paid dearly for proclaiming it. It, it grew because God confirmed his word with miracles and signs following the preaching of the word. Here, listen to me. I said something very important there that I probably didn't emphasize enough. Christianity grew not because Christ's teachings were simply shared with the world. It was Christ himself that was preached. Not Christ's morals, not Christ's ethics, not at the beginning. Remember what Paul said, when I was with you, I was determined to know one thing, Christ and him crucified. And we can talk about Christ crucified and resurrected. And when people recognize the powerful presence of the risen, living Christ, then we can train them in righteousness. Then we can, we can assist them through the renewing of the mind, but they must be born again first. And that comes from recognizing who Jesus is and what he did. 
It grew, it spread, it spread quickly, and in just a few hundred years became the dominant religion on earth. This was in a day with no air travel, no powered vehicles of any kind, and no mass communication other than hand-copied papers. And I also know this, and you know this, when Christianity was legalized and it was adopted as an official religion of the state, it began to be corrupted. There have been great atrocities committed in the name of Jesus that Jesus himself never authorized. And so when you start to share with some people, isn't it interesting how Christianity has civilized and cultured the West? What a softening effect Christianity has had on mankind. You better believe that there's going to be somebody who will say, oh yeah, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? These were horrible. These were mistakes. Now, they might not be as big mistakes as you've been led to believe. I encourage you to look at some stuff. If you're interested in that kind of thing, I can point you in the right direction. But some of these things were reaction, and, and the, a lot of the, the horrors that happened during the Crusades weren't part of this is what we set out to do. These were individuals who went off on their own. Either way, these weren't things that Christ commissioned. Christ's plan was never to take over the world by force. So when somebody says, well, yeah, Europe was Christianized, but it was Christianized by violent means, that is simply false. That's a, we'll do that message someday, just some of the, addressing some of the myths that surround Christianity or Christian history. My point is that wherever Christianity took hold, where it for real took hold, it changed society for the better. Holland is right about that. We are the grateful inheritors of a Judeo-Christian worldview that is preferable in practically everywhere, in every way, to the brutal and savage and violent societies that preceded it. And the morals and ethics that we take for granted as Western morals and ethics are, in fact, Christian morals and ethics. But what he misses that I consider to be so obvious, I can hardly believe he misses it, is that it would never have happened without the resurrection. I understand. You say, well, these, these, okay, these, these disciples, these apostles died for their witness for Christ. But don't people also die for things that, that we know are false? Yeah, they do. People who, uh, these suicide bombers, the 9-11 pilots, they, were, they believed so powerfully in something that they were willing to die for it. And they can't be right, not if we're right, because these things, these beliefs clearly clash. They contradict one another, right? Well, couldn't they have been wrong? Couldn't they have been just as dedicated as these guys and be wrong? No, not in this case, because they were in a position to know whether they were right or wrong. One of the most common claims when people try to explain the resurrection away is that the disciples hid the body. They took it. They buried it, they hid it, they destroyed it, whatever, to hide it, and then claimed he was resurrected. But see, if they did that, they would know they did that. And you'd only remain dedicated to a belief for so long. And when you're talking torture, persecution, and execution, why? What is the gain there if you yourself know that what you are proclaiming is false? They were in a position to know if they were right or wrong. But they had met the risen Savior. 
They, uh, what if they just believed that he rose only spiritually? That would be a, a pure acceptance of faith. Well, we believe he rose because he said he was. We, did you see him? No, because he only rose spiritually. Well, how long are you going to, again, how long are you going to stay loyal to that belief in the face of torture, persecution, and death? But he did. He rose physically. He rose bodily. And they saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They spoke to him. Him, the risen Jesus Christ. And it's because of that, and that is the only thing, I believe, that could explain how adamant they were in their message and in their lifestyle. It's because of those who were on the scene at the time uh, that preached the gospel and lived the gospel so powerfully that thousands and then tens of thousands, and then hundreds of thousands, and then millions, and even billions heard and believed the message. And when those thousands and millions of people heard it, believed it, and then lived out the implications of their belief, what was the result? Societies changed. Laws changed. Lifestyles changed. There are just a couple of points I want to make in terms of application for us today, and we'll be done. For one thing, we do need to recognize that the values that Holland and, and, and these others acknowledge that change the world for the better are indeed the very values the Western world that has been so changed is mocking us for today. We are called to preach the gospel, to share our faith. And whether you are called to be a full-time missionary, whether you are called to be an a, um, occupational pastor or minister of any kind, that is something every Christian is called to do. We spent a while talking about that not too long ago, a few Sundays on every Christian a minister. We're called to preach it and share it, but it is getting harder to live it boldly even here in America. Now, in this case, I am not talking about the big old mean government that's trying to shut down the churches. That's not what's making it hard. What's making it hard is that the Christian views on sex, sexuality, greed, faithfulness, adultery, humility, service, all of these things are increasingly out of step with society. It's harder to live these things and proclaim these things because we are living in a society that more and more disagrees with us, moves further away from these things, belittles us for these things. That's what makes it hard. But we need to do it. We need to stay faithful. We need to, if, because if we're going to live that way, we are going to be mocked. We will stand out, but only if we walk in obedience to the word of Christ. You can accept Christ as Savior, and maybe the only bold and public thing you do is to answer an altar call. Maybe you're baptized. But if you don't live differently, if you live as an undercover Christian, I won't go as far as, as, far as uh, to say that you are not saved, but you will have no impact on those around you. If you're going to obey Christ, you're going to stand out. You will suffer persecution. And we have to recognize that the diminishing Christian influence on our society today 
is at least a little bit, at least a little bit, because so many have failed to live their faith properly. So many others have abandoned it. Now, I'm not a big fan, as you know, of throwing the church under the bus. I don't like, I hear certain claims so often that, well, I got nothing against God but the church, you know. The church is evil. The organized religion, I don't need it. It's, I'm like, you know what? This is what Jesus said. He came to build his church. The assembly is what we're about. And, and a lot of the, what you call the church organized religion is just you bumping heads with people who are just as broken as you are. Christ has been working on smoothing us out for a long time, but every one of us has a sharp edge here and there. And sooner or later, if we, re, if we continue to assemble, we'll bump into one of those sharp edges, find ourselves getting mad, getting injured a little bit. We better walk in grace and mercy and unity with one another because we are in this thing together. And we need each other, and we're going to need each other more and more as the day draws near. But, while I, you know, I remember just being blown away the first time I heard this quote, and now I've heard it so often that I almost roll my eyes when I hear it. Uh, and there's, there's a million different versions of it, but the, the most to-the-point version is, is Gandhi saying, uh, uh, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. You know, the longer version was, uh, I've studied... Uh, the life of Christ and found him to be, be a fascinating man, I might perhaps have become a Christian had I never met one. And it kind of drives the point home is you might be the only Christian somebody meets, you might be the only Jesus somebody meets, so it's super important that you represent him properly. On the other hand, I don't want to be Gandhi or anybody else standing before God on Judgment Day with that as my only excuse. Also, though, we can take heart and learn from history that when Christianity is lived seriously and preached boldly, societies change for the better. It's not too late. It has never worked from the top down, though. Yes, we should vote. Yes, we should get involved in government. But the Great Commission will be stalled if we think the key to this thing is to get the right people in places of power. That is when Christianity begins, historically begins to be corrupted. I think I shared this sometime over the last year. I'm not sure when it was. But a great example of that in American history uh, was the fight over alcohol. And you had the Temperance League and some of these other uh, organizations uh, working hard to pass laws. And they did, successfully, uh, at the federal level that outlawed the sale of alcohol because they saw the legitimate damage it was doing to the family and doing to society. So I thought, we need to make it illegal. Did it work? What happened in the days following the passage of that amendment? Organized crime became huge, and the biggest business was running the illegal alcohol from one place to another. Have we, can we look back historically and see anything that ever made an impact that caused this alcohol sales and consumption to go down? How about when Finney came to town and preached a series of revival meetings? And so many people were thoroughly converted that the, bar, the taverns closed down for a lack of business. You don't need to pass a law. You just need to change hearts, change people. 
We, pe- we preach Christ and trust him to change people. We cannot force it from without. And we should know this. Every one of us, just through experience, should know this. There, there's a fine line there because when you accept Christ, when you, you, when you proclaim, uh, confess him as Savior, you have a responsibility to learn what he has said and obey his commandments. But how many of you have come face to face with the bankruptcy of trying to change somebody by saying, you're a Christian now, so you need to stop this? If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't want to do that anymore. We do correct, we do teach, we do train, but you can't change people. You ought to know because you couldn't change yourself. It's, it's, it's a balancing act because we are called to hold one another accountable. But we have to, at the same time, trust Christ to do the work. Trust the Holy Spirit to do the work in somebody just like he did in us. Finally, on a personal level, Jesus said many things, and not all of them are easy to hear. Now, there are, again, very few people who have a problem with things like saying Jesus is great because he said things like, love your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let the little children come to me. It gets a little harder to hear things like, somebody strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other cheek to strike. But then he goes on to say things like, if you look at a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery. And if your eye offends you, you'd better pluck it out because it would be much more prefer- preferable to go to heaven one-eyed than to go to hell with two eyes. Jesus, it was Jesus, the gentle, loving, peaceful, tolerant Jesus who talked about hell, who talked about judgment, the lake of fire, It was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's unforgivably intolerant by today's standards. There are many other hard sayings that it would be easier to ignore. And people do. People will literally go through the book Maybe just going through the red letters and say, I like this. This is a verse that makes me like Jesus, so I'm going to remember this. They'll come to another part. I don't understand that, so I'm not going to worry about it. They'll come to another part and say, the Jesus I know and love would have never really said this. But if he rose from the dead, we can't ignore anything he said, can we? This is not just a neat trick. He said he'd rise from the dead. He even said he'd do it in three days, and he did. He rose, so I have to take him seriously in everything he has to say. Now, knowing Jesus for as long as I have, I love him more and more. I am more and more attracted to him and his teachings just for having come to know him better. 
But this is not about how attractive he is or how attractive his teachings are. This is about, is something true? If he is who he says he is, I have a decision to make. I'm going to get real quiet here for a second. And then I'm going to get loud because I need everybody to hear this. If Jesus is who he says he is, you have a decision to make. Will you follow him? Will you believe in him? Will you obey him? I will. Because of his, if, if his resurrection is enough to change the world, literally change the world, change the course of history, transform societies, if his resurrection is enough to do that, it is certainly enough to change me and you. You understand? This is my whole point. The point, uh, point of the thing that I opened with is that it is not Christianity that deserves the credit for transforming civilization. It is Christ. Only a risen Christ can have that kind of impact on history. And praise the Lord, he does not just transform societies, he transforms people. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new. It's not teaching that does that. Am I going to accept his offer of salvation? There's the decision I have to make. He rises from the dead and it nails down every single claim he made about me, about you, about the world, about evil, about good, about heaven, about hell. Everything Jesus said at that point, I have to take it. I have to believe it. I have to accept it. Why? Because he said he'd rise from the dead, and he did. And what does he say? Suddenly it puts everything he says about sin in perspective. You think you're okay, but you're not. That's bad news. The worst news is you can't get okay on your own. You are in sin, you are sinful, and sin must be judged. When we sing, I was weeping at that last song, because when, and even in the first song, the wrath of God being satisfied. How can a God of love have wrath? His wrath is against sin. His wrath is against what sin is doing to his creation, what it's doing to us, and it has to be judged, all of that sin. And if that sin is in us, we get judged. We get destroyed. And what Jesus said is, you need a Savior. You can't fix this on your own. Here's the deal we worked out. God's going to take all of your sin, and I am going to carry it to the cross, and that wrath is going to be poured out on me, and I am the only one powerful enough to absorb it. And it's a horror it is a horror to think about all of that wrath being poured out on him because we're the ones that deserved it. And then he says, it's death. 
and I'm going to die because I love you, but I'll be back. If he had stayed dead, how would we know the price was paid? He had to rise from the dead and say, I told you. Since I rose from the dead, you can trust me when I say the debt's been paid. It's finished. Salvation belongs to you now. All you have to do is accept it. Will you? Ushers, you can go get the classes. Everybody else stand with me. When you look at the impact Christianity has had on history and civilization, I think the only rational conclusion is that Christ himself has had that impact. And the only way he could have had that impact is if he truly did rise from the dead. And I don't think this can be overstated. Wonderful as he was as a teacher and a leader, had he remained in the grave, Christianity would have gone nowhere. I find it impossible to believe that Christianity would have been around long enough to be called Christianity. You know, it was years later that they were first called Christians in Antioch. Christianity would have never made it to Antioch had Christ not been raised. It not only survived, it thrived, it grew, and changed the world because he rose from the dead. And he ascended, and he still lives, and offers us a place in his kingdom. But first, again, we have to acknowledge that a place had to be made for us. A price had to be paid, and Christ paid it. And now the offer, I think most succinctly stated in Romans chapter 10, is this, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You need change, and only Christ is strong enough to change you. But that change starts with the new birth. If you're a sinner, you're too far gone to fix. You're a walking dead man, dead woman. So he says, I'm going to offer you a new life. And we'll work on, we'll work on your flesh and your mind after that. I'm going to give you a new spirit, a new heart. In just a second, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to that invitation. First, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for giving your son to die in our place, for paying what you paid to buy us back to yourself, redeeming us. For paying a price big enough for all mankind to be saved and for even giving us the capacity to respond in faith to that offer. I thank you for every believer in this room and I trust, Lord, that every one of them shares my heart to see that everybody in this room is a believer. But we can't, we can't do your job. 
we can proclaim the gospel. We can boldly share it. We can stand for it. We can live it, Lord. But we, don't, we know what our role is and we know what yours is. And I believe I'm praying the heart of every believer in this room. Father, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Speak to the lost this morning, the hurting, the prodigal, the disenfranchised, the angry. And reveal yourself for who you really are. Right now, Lord God, I'm asking for a supernatural manifestation of your presence, a supernatural revelation of your love in the hearts and the minds of every unbeliever in this room. If there are unbelievers who think they are believers, reveal to them that there's a decision still to be made. And call us to follow you, to submit to your lordship, and to stop resisting the inevitable. Grant that person, those two people, those five people, those ten people, however many it is, Lord, the wisdom to recognize exactly where they are in life and where they're headed, the humility to confess their need for a Savior and the boldness to come and receive that free gift today, now, in Jesus' name, every believer said, amen. If you desire to be saved today, please come down here. If you don't want to come down here, I won't trick you. I'm not going to make you come down. What I want you to do is come down here and just join the family and hear the welcome and the applause of every believer in this room. If you don't want to come down, just say, I'm not going to walk down there in front of everybody, Scott, but I'll raise my hand real quick for you to see. I need to be saved today. Anybody? Well, if that doesn't get you saved, I don't know what else to say. Listen, I know I'm speaking to mostly believers here. I just don't want to let one get away. If you were touched, if God spoke something to you, you felt a tug there, like, whoa, wait a second, I just realized something, I'm not sure. But you just couldn't bring yourself to walk down in front of people? Good news is you're still alive and you're still breathing and therefore you've got time. You've got the opportunity to make that decision before you leave today. So don't leave without talking to me. I'll pray with you in my office. You can confess it later. Does anybody up there or down here need to make that decision. Raise your hand and say, today's my day. You? Come here, man. Have you not done this? Have you not done this? You have. You have. So it's like a rededication? All right. Well, thanks, man. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this public confession of the faith. Thank you for public confession and praise for the salvation you've worked in his life. We thank you for your saving grace, your saving power in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. He just wanted to make a public confession of his faith. He's been saved. <laughs> Hallelujah. Anybody else? One day is as good as, another, as good as any other day to get into the kingdom, but there's something, be something special about celebrating the gift of life on the day when life conquered death once and for all. Amen? Praise the Lord. Well, what else do I need to do here? I know what we need to do. Go ahead and be seated. 
remain in an attitude of worship as we prepare to receive from the Lord's table. I wanted to do that first because uh, uh, we celebrate open communion. Let's do this first. If you didn't get the communion elements on your way in, raise your hand. The ushers will get you those right now. It's a little one-piece thing. Everything's self-contained. Uh, I wanted to do the altar call first because we celebrate open communion at Living Word, meaning you don't have to have uh, membership credentials to be here, uh, to, to participate, share this with us, this ordinance. But the uh, Bible's very clear. This is, this is an ordinance that is reserved for Christian believers. And I wanted to give, if there's one person who wasn't sure about where they stood with Christ, guess what? If you got saved today, you're welcome at the Lord's table for this celebration. All right? So... Uh, We've got the children in here. Parents, uh, you, you need to be the arbiter of whether your children are in a position where uh, taking communion is okay. Uh, we'll trust you with that. The Bible has some very serious things to say about uh, proper frame of mind and uh, who's qualified to take communion, but it, is, it does not say, as some teach, that if you are unsaved or unconfessed and you take communion, you're going to be struck dead. That's not really what that, that passage is talking about. Uh, but still, we, do, we don't want to treat it casually because this is an ordinance that was instituted by the Lord himself. Right? Uh, I'll read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes. We talked about his death at length last week. We talked about it a little today, and we talk about his resurrection. And what is it we're supposed to do at this moment? And I think it's still just rolling around in my heart because of the, the songs we sang and, and the, the direction some of this sermon has gone, uh, that let's remember, you know, this, this, one of the most potent things about this, the bread, is to remember that when Jesus said, when the Bible tells us that Jesus died and it describes his death, uh, this was not some, uh, we talk about a God-man. And Jesus was, identity-wise, he was God. He was all God but the glory, all man but the sin. That meant he laid his supernatural attributes aside the only thing that made him different as a man was his sinlessness. And that's significant. But he was no more physically able to endure the cross than you or I. He didn't have some magic working in him that made that more endurable just because he was the God-man. He endured it. He endured the full agony of it for us. When he took the bread, he broke it to indicate his broken body. And he shed his blood to wash our sins away because the, the, the law, not just the law, creation and the creator, it was built so that only a blood sacrifice could atone for sin and only the ultimate sinless sacrifice 
could do that once and for all. And yeah, we absolutely should focus on and remember the death of Christ. But this is the day to celebrate the resurrection. And so I come back to this. There were many important and significant things about the death of Christ. But far and away, the most important and significant thing about his death is that it was so temporary. Jesus died, and it's important, but he didn't stay dead. And as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show his death. We're not celebrating death. We're remembering his death till he comes. How can he be coming if we're remembering his death? Because his death was not like your death, wasn't like anybody else's death. He didn't stay dead. He rose and he ascended and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he'll, he'll be back. He'll be back soon. In fact, before the end of the... No, I'm not going <laughs> to... Not time to make light of that. Let's take the bread, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for the broken body of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Jesus, for enduring that pain and that suffering for us. Let us never forget the weight of that, the horror of that. Because if we forget what you endured in your body, we will forget the horror of our own sin. But thank you for bearing that punishment, that brokenness in your own body to provide us healing and wholeness and the promise of life. Thank you for the bread in Jesus' name. We'll take the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Jesus, for pouring out your blood on that cross for the remission of my sin, our sin, the sin of the world. Thank you for offering that blood, not as a covering, Lord, but as a cleansing to us. And that when we are found in you, we are found under that blood and perceived and accepted as righteous in your eyes. Thank you, Lord, for the only blood that could save us, for shedding it, for making it available to us. And by faith today, we celebrate that and remember that and receive it again in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.